welcome, welcome, and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And I'm so, I always say I'm so excited, but I am so excited. What else am I supposed to be? I have a wonderful guest today, Dr. Ruby Mendenhall. And as you all know, I don't read bios. I let people introduce themselves. So um, Ruby, can I call you Ruby? Is that okay? Yes, of course. Okay, Ruby. So introduce yourself. Yeah. So um, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited. I love, love the name of it. So as you said, my name is Ruby Mendenhall. And it's interesting when you said name. I'm thinking a lot these days. Um, I'm named after my mom. And so um, I kind of grew, grew up answering to little Ruby, right? My mom was just Ruby and I was little Ruby. And so even as she is getting older now, and I think about um, who I'll be, right? Like kind of, you know, kind of deep into the future. So so that's a kind of um, something I've been thinking about mm-hmm. and kind of keeping on the theme of my parents. Um, they both are from the South. They migrated to Chicago when they were young. My grandmother's um, sister took care of um, her grandmother, who was an enslaved human in this country. And when I give presentations, I, I often start there because I want people to see the legacy of slavery in this country and to see the legacy of it in my face and my voice that many people tell me has the rhythm of the South, which I love. And and in all things um, to know that it was very recent in this country. And um, and it's part of this whole struggle we're talking about health and wellness. So I'm that. Mm-hmm. Um, I am also a faculty member at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And um, it's it's been interesting um, as a Black faculty member at a predominantly white institution. So I'm that also come from a huge family that um, it's very, very kind of um, full of Black culture and um, signifying and just kind of all kinds of things, which, which I love, which I love. So um, I guess that's how I would describe myself. Oh, wonderful. I love that. And I love how you start with your family that, you know, most people start with, and I work here and I, and I, I even do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when I used to have a, a, an office in a building where I used to work right um, now, um, I'm not working in kind of that kind of work setting in my creativity lab, which is really an office. Oh, love it. Love it. <laughs> so, lab. I need yeah. one of those. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, um, but on my um, shelves at work, on the top of my shelves were uh, all the pictures of my family. Oh, back to my great, great, great grandmother. Yeah. They would come in and they would go, wait, what? it was kind of like this moment of, wait, why am I looking at all these old people up here? On mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to introduce them to everybody in my family. And I would say, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for them. Yes. I have to have them in front of me all the time to remind me about why it is that I'm sitting in this seat, um, no matter where that seat is. So you were talking also about uh, being faculty at a predominantly white school. So mm-hmm. what is that like? I hear I hear about it from my father, who actually, mm-hmm. well, he was on faculty at two schools. Uh, one of them was a historically Black college and university, mm-hmm. Howard. And then the other was Temple University that people think is an HBCU, which it is yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so tell me about your experience. What, what has that been like? And how did you get into the work of racial mi- microaggressions? Yeah, so um, my undergraduate degree is in occupational therapy. And I should say, too, um, even before going to school, I wanted to be a physician. 
And I remember telling my mom that, and at the time, right, there were um, children starving in Africa and, you know, you had the commercials about giving and it just tore me up. And so when I told her, she had this look on her face and she was like, you, you have to go to Africa, right? And, and I don't know what that did to me. She didn't tell me not to go or not to be a physician, but it was something in that, um, my, you know, mother-daughter connection, something. So I didn't end up doing that, but I did um, become an occupational therapist, which I loved. I always say it was my best job ever. Mm. And so I worked at then Cook County Hospital and I worked in the pediatric unit. And so I did developmental assessments of children, taught physicians how to do developmental assessments. I worked in the neonatal intensive care unit. You know, I was afraid to touch the little babies, but I loved it. And even now, I'm trying to think about how I can um, volunteer at a neonatal intensive care unit holding um, little babies. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I was at Cook County, I also was on the protective service team. And so, you know, and I'm young in my 20s. I didn't have children at the time. And kind of with the authority, the power of the hospital, right? Like we looked at mothers who often were there because their children were failing to thrive. They weren't gaining weight as they should for their age. And so we would say, and not in these words, but that was the spirit behind it was, um, what's wrong? Are you not caring for your baby? Do we need to snatch the baby? And you hear the mother say, you know, I, I can't afford the formula. And so what I'm doing is I'm watering it down. And so after hearing this over and over and often from um, Black and Latinx moms, I was like, oh, this isn't an issue if they care about their kids, if they love their kids, this is an issue about society, right? Will we provide them with enough resources to feed their children? So then I um, went to school at the University of, um, University of Chicago to the Harris School of Public Policy, right? Because I was interested in, um, as a society, how do we create systems that, that care, right? That provide support. And so after that, I went to work at um, the Ounce of Prevention Fund, which even as I get older, I really appreciate that title, right? Like prevention, um, it's worth a pound of cure. And so went there, um, worked with legislators around childcare, around welfare, and often around the policy table, as I call it. It was um, often white males who were very invested in the cause. But I remember looking around the table, often being the only Black person, definitely like the only Black female, and I wondered, like, why aren't the mothers who are struggling, why aren't they at the table kind of thinking about this future, thinking about how to create legislation to support them? And I wanted to do it because, um, you know, I wanted to answer the question about how mothers get their needs met, what things that they need. I wanted to bring the policy table to them, I guess, in some ways. And I recently heard someone I can't remember who said, maybe it'll come back to me, but they said, we have to think about that the table is in the community. And I was like, ooh, right? Like we don't, we don't that's, that's deep right there. That <laughs> Isn't is like, that deep? Whoa, like, just, I have to like, wait, the table is in the community. Yes. Right, writing yes. that down. Wow. Yes. Isn't that powerful? And I was like, woo. And so um, after Robert Taylor, I went to um, school at Northwestern to get my PhD and I um, study human development and social policy. Right. Wow. Wow. So that's, I'm just gonna, I have to like soak all of it in because I have so many questions and I don't like shooting questions at people, but I'm going to be shooting some questions. Sure, sure, sure. So, so first of all, I'm always fascinated that people go into the profession or start in the profession of occupational therapy, mm -hmm. um, especially because of my work in mental health. 
I know for people with lived experience who, you know, want to enter into the workforce in mental health in some way or another, mm-hmm. I always encourage if they're not interested in peer workforce work, which everybody mm-hmm. isn't, to mm-hmm. think about occupational therapy because it's yeah. such a nice match. Yeah. And I love it. And I recently found out something that I think is um quite, what's the word? I don't even know the word for it. And if I knew about it earlier, I would have spread the word word earlier. Our hospital here is um, called Carl Health. And um, at an event, someone recently said that they have a program, and I hope I'm saying it right. If not, you can call Carl Health and they can tell you what's right. But that someone could walk off the street and say, I have an interest in this health field, right? Nursing, occupational therapy, something else. And they would provide them with free training. Isn't that amazing? And like, wouldn't that be something to um, replicate that across the country, right? Like you have a passion, that's your gift, right? That's your genius. And you can walk in and say, and especially right now that we need all of those um, health workers, right? And and get, you know, get the support to take you through. I mean, I I, I just, and and many people are doing it already, right? I'm working a lot with community health workers and many people already are the healers, right? And people go to them, um, because they have a, a kind heart, right? Kind of a soft approach. They're very insightful. They um, can say, oh, you know, that's interesting. Wow. What about this versus now you, you right? Like you need to stop and lay, and take four steps and go right and then three steps, right? So uh-huh. I, I just think, um, and I'm thinking, right? Like how do you create those systems that do that, right? As you try to dismantle oppression and um, just the the cost, the, the severe cost in terms of people's lives, literally, right? Yeah. Like how do you dismantle it? But then what do you build? What else do you build? So I'm, so I'm really excited oh, about building. There's that. so many things happening. Oh, you're just like touching on so many things now. And that is, um, you know, I, I uh, got very interested in what they were doing in um, Zimbabwe with friendship benches and the grandmothers who yes, they I were training. Yes. I know, I know. I so it. they started doing something similar in New York. And mm-hmm. then um, I happened upon this TED Talk with Dr. Vikram Patel about task shifting, task sharing, mm-hmm. and using community members um, and giving them a little bit of training to be able to support the community in um, health education, navigation, mm-hmm. support, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so lo and behold, um, I'm, I'm at this event and um, I'm looking down the list and I see Vikram Patel's name and I'm like, oh, is that <laughs> Vikram Patel? there are a few people where I go like serious fangirl. Yes. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, is that the Vikram Patel? And, yes. I'm, like, and I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, it is. And I'm like, I can't even talk to him. I'm so nervous. I can't even introduce myself to him. Mm-hmm. I'm so nervous. But um, I did get to talk to him. And then um, he invited me actually to come to Harvard and, and uh, be on a panel um, in which they were doing some things with um, global leaders. It was it was really quite amazing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they are trying to advance um, that work in the U.S. And um, I know that the Biden administration has um, keen interest on um, community health worker as a workforce and expanding community health workers, as well as um, the mental health peer workforce and um, I should say behavioral health because it's both mental health and substance use, Mm -hmm. a peer Mm -hmm. workforce and recovery coaching. So I think we are starting to look more at, um, I always say a community needs to heal itself. And so um, to think that we always should be sending someone someplace versus what is our responsibility right where we are in our own homes, in our own communities, if we have that 
calling. Not everybody's yes. very good at that. You are exactly right. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that I would want, and I do not have an Uncle Bubba, so let's just pretend. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would want mm-hmm. Uncle Bubba, who's kind of like, I don't have time for you. Pull yourself right. up by your bootstraps. Uncle Bubba, right. Yeah, right? Uncle Bubba is not helpful. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you can just stay in your own house, Uncle Bubba. <laughs> but for other people, I think who have, as exactly as you're saying, you know, that heart and that natural instinct mm-hmm. to be supportive, mm-hmm. yes. how can we provide them? with a little extra skills and support to yes. be able to be a part of that community healing process. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I love it. And that's what I'm really kind of looking at now is um, ways that as African-Americans, as Blacks here um, in the U.S., we heal. And I call it like cultural wealth, right? And I talk about, you know, our ancestors survived the Middle Passage, survived chattel slavery, um, neo-slavery. Jim Crow, um, police killings, like, you know, I, we could be here all day, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so by all of that, and what kind of resources have they passed down? And how can we use some of those tools to foster health and wellness? And we're doing it already. So fortunately, we're funded by the MacArthur Foundation, also the National Science Foundation, and we train young people, right? So high school students and young adults up to age 21 to do um, some of this work to serve as trusted individuals in the community who kind of um, bridge. And we also train them as citizen scientists or citizen community scientists, right? I don't want the word citizen to be exclusive, it's inclusive. And one thing we told them is like, go in your community. Like, what do you see that people are doing to heal themselves? What do you see that people are doing to be well? And we asked them too, like, what brings you joy? What makes you hopeful? And I'm noticing it doesn't take like a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, right? Um, spending time with their pets, um, spending time with their families, being in nature, those things. Although, right, some, I'm not saying money is not important because money is very, very important in terms of restorations and reparations. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) But in some ways, um, some of the things that really can be healing, life-saving, I would even argue, um, you know, I think we can flood our communities with. And and so that's what we're asking them to help us to do. Wow. Wow. So I love the idea of citizen and community scientists. And and I would suspect you're you're, you're probably one, right? With your diagnosis and, I, and you know, yeah. trying to find out the information, talking to people, synthesizing the information, understand, looking for patterns, like what works for you, yes. what doesn't work, talking to others, like, you know, what were all of that is science, right? And a lot of times yes. we don't recognize it as that, right? Um, and, and this new knowledge. And so that's right. a, another thing right. I'm interested in. Um, how do we, new and old knowledge, right? How do we disseminate it more? How do we make sure that as many people as possible have these healing tools? And so a a group I'm working with is called Sea Hearts here um, with Black women and men um, and faculty and community members and undergraduate and graduate students. It's really beautiful. And Sea Hearts is um, community healing through um, community healing and resistance through storytelling. And so the importance of um, telling your story and in the Black tradition, right? Like how we did with testimonies um, in church. I grew up in church where they had testimonies and you sit there. I remember even as a child sitting and looking and listening and like, oh, so you were sick and now you're well, right? Oh, so you didn't have any money and now you have money. And and just um, what it does to, to listen and to witness that. Yeah. And so um, that's what we're trying to do also emotional emancipation circles, right? With Dr. Enola Ayer, Cheryl Grills, 
Um, we're participating in those um, because we want to train the young people, right? High school students to do that with their peers and to go back and it, Sankofa, right? Kind of go back, but in some ways they carry it with them, um, mm-hmm. that wisdom and to um, be healers with that kind of traditional wisdom with that foundation is also mm-hmm. kind of what we're thinking about. Wow. Wow. So again, I do see why we were introduced because, um, <laughs> yeah, I think in my own way, I am a version of a scientist and and I um, think of it as, and I'm always having this picture generally in my presentations, which is that of an iceberg. So yes. I feel like I'm an anthropologist of sort, maybe yes. I'm an anthropologist, ethnographist, or whatever. Yes. I'm like all yes. those things where it's like, I see us always at the top of the iceberg and then think about, well, wait a minute. If I think about the Titanic, they mm-hmm. saw the top of the iceberg, but it was mm-hmm. the bottom of the iceberg that spread out underneath yeah. that you can't see yeah. that put the hole in the bottom of yes. the ship that caused it to sink. Yes. So we need to continue to go to that bottom of the iceberg. And yes. I'm always chipping away going, am I there yet? Oh, no, maybe that's not it. And I just keep chipping away yeah. to find out what foundationally needs to change versus us kind of changing the things at the top, but kind of sort of getting the same results. Maybe they're a little bit better, but they're not like, wow, if we really change this thing underneath. And you, you also hit on one other thing Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about that, which is when you were talking about first working at the neonatal and working Mm -hmm. um, in um, pediatrics as Mm a OT, but Mm -hmm. then suddenly kind of seeing, "Well, well, wait, the moms don't have milk. Right. Um, so right. we can sit here and do all of this stuff. Right. But if we don't take care of why they don't yes. have milk, we're not really solving the problem. Yeah. So the moms yeah. aren't the problem. Yes. The poverty is the problem or the um, systemic um, kind of maybe institutional stuff is really the problem. And how can you change that? Sometimes that's through policy. So yes, really yes. love that. Yeah. And, and like I said, it took me a while to, to get it right. Because, again, I, you know, I'm socialized in the mindset of, um, you know, got to got to look for, you know, think about the child's safety. Right. Is it safe? Is it, is it this? And and, you know, again, young and not really kind of recognizing what was happening. Right. What, what was being reproduced in terms of these moms being vulnerable and then being being blamed for their vulnerability. Right. Mm-hmm. And then. Worst of all, the children um, suffering and and not being able to grow and to thrive. So that was really transformative for me. And then I guess I'll say what it means to kind of be in the academy, right? So all of those different things, right, um, kind of landed me at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. The University of Illinois really is a place that believes in interdisciplinary research. I was able to do study in a second discipline. So I was able to study genomic biology. I did a research project with Jane Robinson, who leads the um, Institute for Genomic Research, looking at how living in neighborhoods with high levels of gun violence, how that stress gets under the skin to affect the health and well-being of Black mothers. I was able mm-hmm. to work with the um, National Center for Supercomputing, Exceed, at time, which was funded by NSF, was the program. And to look at over 800,000 documents by and about Black women and look to see from like 1740 to 2016, what things have Black women said about um, oppression in the U.S.? What have they said about needing to um, fix this system, right, in which many of them did try to fix it, and also how their stories were sometimes in the in the mouth 
of um, white men or black men or white women, right? Like as black women, their voices were uh, were often erased or excluded. And, and how do you use technology to kind of go and to uncover that history and that, that wisdom? Because again, I'm always kind of thinking about how did people make it? Like, how did you survive slavery? How did you survive Jim Crow? And I have stories in my family. And even now I'm um, an associate dean at the Carl Illinois College of Medicine, which I didn't mention, but overall it, it really has been just amazing to have ideas and to be in a place where those ideas can come to life, to be in a place where people are excited about your ideas, to be in a place where people can, you know, um, like I said, I did study a year in genomic biology, but Gene Robinson, right, that's his gift, his life, his passion, and to have access to his resources, the same as the uh, National Center for Supercomputing, the Cancer Institute recently um, provided me with funds. So we're going to look at um, women, Black women who have cancer, who are under 40, and just kind of talk about, you know, what it's like, how did they cope, um, how did they heal, right? What Again, what cultural resources did they mm-hmm. use for healing? And um, how did they, were they able to protect their fertility, right? We know in this country, shamefully, um, the outcomes of Black mothers and their babies, right? Yeah, the protection of fertility. You just hit on one for me that, mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up, people would say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my brother was very clear he wanted to be a scientist. And guess mm-hmm. what he is? He's a scientist. Yes. And then I was very clear, which was, <laughs> I don't know what, you know, you just have to remember the 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 era in which I was born. So um, I wanted to be a mom. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think also because um, I'm an army brat or a global nomad and, we moved all over the world and it was just my brother and I that we had to be each other's best friends. And then Mm -hmm. we had to make new friends and then three years later, make new friends. And then, you know what I mean? So for me, it was like, if I could have a football team of children, not Mm -hmm. out of my own body, some of Mm -hmm. them would be adopted, um, (laughs) that they would always have a crew. Like my kids would always have this crew. That was just my mind of how my mind worked because of my uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, I'll never forget when, you know, I um, had to start taking um, medication for my condition that nobody really asked me about what were my goals as far as being a mom. Yeah. Well, when I realized my moon time was changing, let's just put mm-hmm. it that way. I don't want to get mm-hmm. out there with all my business but, um, <laughs> because of the medication. I finally asked the doctor about like, why hadn't we not talked about that as a side effect? And what does that really mean? Yeah. And oh, yeah, yeah, that could happen. Mm-hmm, sure, sure. And I said, well, what does this mean as far as me being a mother? And he goes, oh, you won't be a mother. And I'm like, what do you mean I won't be a mother? Wow. <laughs> you know, wow. um, Meaning I won't have my own biological children. And he yeah. said, well, because you need to be on the medication all the time. And we don't know what it's going to cause as far as birth defects and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, well, I also wanted to adopt. I yes. thought, okay, you know, yes. adoption is cool. I could do yes. that. No, you cannot do that if you have been like involuntarily hospitalized, et cetera, in mm-hmm. my, where I live. Mm-hmm. So I think these are, you know, such powerful conversations and, you know, I don't know if it was, you know, again, the diagnosis of schizophrenia has its own stigma and issues kind of all alone, but then kind of showing up as a woman of color, um, you know, as a African-American, I'm also a Muscogee Creek that what, you know, what does that mean? And how do people providers kind of respond to that with their own sort of um, microaggression lens, if you will. So sometimes it's hard to figure out. Yeah. And and I would even say, and I, when we did um, trainings with microaggressions in different departments, we talked about 
when students, especially students of color, come to you and they have different ways of seeing things of science, right, based on their background. And even if you aren't interested, right, <laughs> if you don't care one little ounce about it, try to connect them with someone else or even, you know, engage them intellectually as you engage others. So I say that to even if the physician say, wow, you know what? I have never heard of any such thing, right? But let me let me look into that, right? Let me yes. ask my colleagues if they've ever had that experience. And maybe yep. someone has, right? Or even kind of start, start the journey, start the quest themselves. And, and I think that's part of healing when you see that someone has this, this future or have has this um, drive, right? Something on yeah. the inside, right? Yeah. One of my mentors said, when you talk about Black women, your face lights up. And I didn't even know that, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But I was like, yeah. oh, okay. And, but, you know, now I'm learning to, like, you can see what, what energizes people, right? Yes. You can hear it. And to see that in you and to physicians, right? Generally are empathetic, um, right? That's often why they go into the field, and to be able to do that across racial, gender, sexuality, yeah. and all of that, that's something that I think, right, more, a lot of training could help, even with my own, as a parent, right, like when they come, and I'll give you just quickly two um, ways that my kids came to me, and I was like, get out of here, right, like <laughs> one of them, when he was like five or six, was like, you know, I want to learn Chinese, right, he was with a um, young boy, they spoke Chinese, and it fascinated him. And, you know, we were like, man, we get out. We're like, like, where? How? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. but he, he came back. He came back. He came back. So eventually um, the university has a Chinese school on Saturdays. He was there. And the principal one day said, you know, he's one of the best students that I ever had. And I was like, you mean he's one of the best black students you ever had? She's like, no, he's one of the best students I've ever had in um, the U.S. and China. And I was like, wow. And then I had a um, colleague who was from China. He was speaking to her. And and this is young. He was in elementary still at the time. And she said, wow, he's speaking Chinese without an accent. And I say that to say like that, he had that gift and that ability. And we, right, were dismissing it, but he kept coming back, right? Like, like right. no, this is, this is moving me. And so recently my other son was um, asking for very, very expensive um, equipment to build a computer. And I was like, ain't nobody like paying all that money. But on the same, on the same hand, I'm running a program, right? Computer science program funded by NSF. So I was like, okay. And he put together, he, we had about 20 boxes coming to the house. He put together that computer by himself. Part of my fear was, oh man, I'm helping this, but I was helping him with that. He did it by himself. And at the last 15 minutes, asked for support. So again, people come to you with, with something that's really big yeah. and you can't see the really bigness or the, the power of it. But if you if you open up, and again, I'm saying as a parent, right? Like it's, it's just amazing. So I use that as ways that we underestimate or we don't listen that could be very powerful to people. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I wanted to ask you two things. Mm -hmm. I know we're going to have to look at time, but I want to make sure we talk about two things. And one of them is um, your focus on health and wellness and creating, I think you said it was a wellness store. No. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. And so the wellness store is part of the MacArthur project, but it grew out of when you talk about these big visions. So I did a TED talk. 
And I talked about having a um, healing campus, right? Four buildings, the Maya Angelou Art Center. And her quote was, here, here I stand, a phenomenal woman. The Fannie Lou Hamer, Sick and Tired of Being Sick and Tired Wellness um, Center. The um, Harriet Tugman, I Got a Right to Liberty or Death Restoration Center. And then um, Shirley Chisholm's Policy Clinic on Women. Her quote was, um, America Needs Women's Idealism and um, Determination. Right. So kind of having this beautiful campus of um, healing for black women, people often say, what about black men? And, um, you know, and others, I'm like, you know, at the time it was my vision for women. And, you know, I love black men and um, all of that. But I will say like different parts of that I have been doing when I was on that TED stage, I didn't have a dime for any of this. Right. Nothing. It was just my vision that I thought was um, it was just coming from me. Right. Just kind of boiling up. And um, so now part of that is the wellness store where, like I said, we're training community health workers who are high school students and young adults up to age 21 to go out and see what are some of the challenges, especially those who live in neighborhoods with high levels of violence. One of the um, community health workers who recently completed the training talked about her brother, how the gun violence is affecting him. I won't go into the details, but just how the gun violence is affecting him. It It just brings tears to your eyes. So we're working together to come up with some tools. And again, the tools have to be where people can accept them and embrace them and they feel good. Mm-hmm. The goal of the wellness store, hopefully, is that people won't have to raise their hand and say, hey, I have this issue, but that is part of the culture. And it'll have low-tech tools from like um, things that ground you emotionally, like squeezy balls, scent, to um, phone apps, to um, fashion. I, you know, I love clothing. One that has could be quotes on your mother or your um, grandfather or others, but also putting sensors in the clothing where if your body is revved up, you can tell. And then you kind of have these exercises, breathing and other things that get you into the relaxation response, right? That helps the body right. to heal up to sash homes, um, small, affordable, smart healing homes um, that have everything. So literally when you go into a house, Everything is healing you from smart toilets that can do urine analysis to, we talked about mirrors that can use facial recognition and let you know. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) I'm sorry. Now you just stepped stepped into the tech zone and my, you see my eyes kind of go, wait, what? Wait, Mm -hmm. what? My my toilet's going to do what? My mirror's going to do what? My mirror's going to say, girl, you need to lose some weight. (laughs) No. I see you. You cannot hide from that. You look good. And <laughs> you know, your BMI, we got to take care of that. <laughs> or, oh, wow, such beauty. I know you like to run. What do you say we run for 10 minutes today and then tomorrow we try for 20 minutes, right? So or I would like say that. mirror, mirror on the wall. We got a little thing we got to talk about. <laughs> Actually, I think this is such a great idea because it can also shoot you affirmations. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I yes. can imagine. I said I said all the scary <laughs> things that I know were true about myself. So the mirror is not going to lie. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's also lovely to get those um, affirmations because it's hard for us sometimes to be positive. So I am going to ask you this one last question and then we're going to do the wisdom dropping. So I hope we have enough time. Um, One is you're designing an app to train providers (laughs) to make sure that they're not 
treating people different who are people of color. Okay, I said that really, that was a long and roundabout way to say what you're doing. So what are you doing? Do I have it right? Oh, oh, well, you know what? We actually did talk about, our team did talk about um, developing a microaggression app that um, could tell when it, that would collect information about when it happened, um, where it happened, and also the physical and emotional response to it, right? Because our students- talked about um, going into a depression, eating a lot, um, unable to focus, right? One student talked about one of the things that a professor said to them in essence about, you know, um, people like you, right, don't belong here. And just kind of going home and and replaying it over and over and talked about, you know, I should have been studying for my other classes, but I could not, right? I couldn't get it out of my mind. So just kind of collecting the stories, right? And the consequences, because that's really important that when you have power, as we do in, um, as professors in the academy, and I did that at, at a school, I won't <laughs> kind of say the name of professor, um, used the N-word, right? And I was like, oh, man. And so I was like, do I say anything? Do I not? So I was tossing and turning all night long. I said, okay, I'm going to say something. Went went to the next class. And afterwards, I was like, you know, and you know how you, you're scared, right? Trembling. You know, like when you when you use that word, it made me feel, um, you know, kind of this way, that way. And um, well, you know, I was just using it in an example and it was this and that. I was like, well, yeah, you know, but you could have used like the N word or, or some. Well, and I, I left that conversation. Well, OK, he's going to say the exact same same thing. Mm-hmm. Like he hasn't heard anything I said, but the toll <laughs> that it took for yes. me to think about. Do I say anything right? Grace coming up. Do I just kind of sit back? And that's what a lot of students are dealing mm. with and it's a cost to that. So just trying to capture it um, with an app, we did talk about doing that and here's some ideas. Uh, okay. We actually went through a training to launch um, a company that kind of does apps like that. I think that's so important. I, you know, I struggle with that on the daily. I really uh-huh. do. And and things that will come back from my past, it won't even have happened in that day. Yeah. It'll be somehow it'll, it'll like come up in my brain yes. and I'll replay it and I'll wonder, well, what did I do wrong or what could I have done better? Yes. Yes. And, you know, my father of all fathers of wisdom, who is my biological father, so I'm not talking about God, I'm talking about my father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I call him the father of all wisdom. I'll call him and I'll I'll, I'll be upset about it. And, and my father will say, you always have to remember, it's not you. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Take it out of you. And yeah. now let's look at the other person and see what the other person did or what you would have wanted the other person to do, but recognize it's not about you. I had a teacher tell me I was a horrible writer and I believed it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's, that's the harm, right? Like you hear it and sometimes you can internalize it. Yes. Internalize it to the point where I think even still to this day, I have a love hate relationship with writing where um, I really love writing. And when I do it, I'm like, Oh wow, that, did I write that? That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other times it's like, I suck at writing and I can't write, <laughs> you know, because it's that that record is playing in my head. So it's yeah. such a valuable thing. I hope that piece of technology is something that can come to fruition. Yeah. So this is the wisdom dropping moment. <laughs> Drop some wisdom. Mm-hmm. So if there's one thing that you want to leave our listeners with, what would that be? I think the one thing is that I, and this is from my own life, my own lived experience, is that I realized that when I speak things, um, when I have ideas about what should happen or what I would like to do, and I share them with others, I put them on walls, I have like so many plaques and notes and things everywhere, that a lot of times they come 
to pass. And so even with our young people that were training to be community health workers, we start with what's your big, bold idea, right? And sometimes they don't have one. I'm like, that's fine. Like, what, what's, your, what's your dream? Because I want to support them to do some of that now, right? Like, you know, I'm in a place with resources. I can make some of those big, bold, audacious, like they think never in a lifetime ideas happen in five minutes, right? And so um, I would just tell the, the audience, like when you feel something that's really important, um, find people that you can share with whose eyes light up with you as you talk about it. And I, I really believe that that's the first step to really making it happen to manifest it. And so that's what I'm also hoping with the wellness store and all of those now, now, so now I'm sharing with you kind of like a big, bold, audacious idea, right? All of the, all that I talked about is a path and a step to the MacArthur project. The real title is um, Centering Youth's Wellness, colon, designing a third reconstruction and Chicago Renaissance, right? So first reconstruction after slavery, second Brown versus Board, civil rights era. And and now, right in this moment, let's do it, right? Let's do equality, justice for good, right? So so yeah. that's kind of the big, bold, audacious that I, you know, put in the title, <laughs> right, of all yeah. that I'm doing. And even the Renaissance, because the art, art and science, right, um, is just so powerful. And how do we harness that power to heal and again, to build the new. Wonderful, wonderful. And I hope everybody takes that a uh, bit of wisdom and does their, I call them uh, big, hairy, audacious goals, the BHAGs, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> takes their big, audacious goals, <laughs> writes them down and shares them with people yes. who light up and get excited by them because yes. you can turn those um, goals into actionable things. Yes. So I think that's wonderful. Yes. So thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. And thanks to the listeners for joining in and remember to like, comment, subscribe, do all those things and uh, join us next week for Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thanks so much, Ruby.